So welcome back to another episode of Educate My Black. Today I'm really excited um, to have Adrian on the podcast with us. Um, Adrian Rollins is an educator that I followed on Twitter. And in recent years, in terms of seeing his like his profile and seeing the things that he does on Twitter, um, I've definitely come to realise that he's had a background before education that has been just as illustrious as the one he has in education. Um, I really don't think I can do this introduction justice, <laughs> to be quite honest with you. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to pass directly over to Adrian and I'm going to ask him if he would be up for introducing himself um, to you all on the podcast. So hi, Adrian, how are you doing? Hi, good afternoon. Nice. So about myself, uh, firstly, I was, I was born and raised in East London uh, and primarily in a single parent family. So I grew up in East London and uh, that, was in, that was interesting. That was an interesting experience. Grew up in the 70s and uh, 80s and uh, attended school in Newham. And my entire school career was in Newham, various schools. And when I finished school, I went into my first career uh, which was professional sport. So I played professional cricket for 10 years, uh, primarily for Derbyshire County Cricket Club. So I was there for eight seasons and then Northamptonshire County Cricket Club for three seasons. I retired for injury, um, having made approximately about 230 first team appearances in total. And I went into education. So initially I was unqualified because I actually studied for my degree later in my career. I decided I, I was going to focus on my sports career but I was always reminded by my mum that um, education was important. So I started to study for my degree through the Open University. Mm. And that was, you know, that was part time. But my career ended early because I got injured and had to retire. So I, but I decided to go into education, worked as an unqualified for a few years before completing my degree, which is a maths based degree. And then later going on to do my master's, which was in education. But um yeah, that was, that was, it was, it was a, the transition was, was interesting because I, you know, my, I have teachers in my family. I'm one of six teachers in my family. And uh, my mum was a very experienced educator. She was a, a head teacher in London for more than, well, virtually 25 years. She was the first black head teacher in the London Bar of Newham. And then she followed up by being the first black head teacher in London by Enfield. So she kind of paved the way for me to go. Although she didn't force me into education, but that's something I went into. My subject is maths. Although I started off unqualified as a as a unqualified P teacher, um, but I just felt that firstly at school my my best subject was maths, and also secondly I just felt I had a lot more to offer to my community as an ex sportsman. I think kind of an ex sportsman teaching PE was a a bit much pushing coming across as a one trick pony and I didn't think there's more to us than than that cliche of being sports people uh, so I, I taught maths and I still teach maths and I'm in my about to enter the 19th year of my career why I'm in the 19th year of my career and um, I am currently a deputy head of school at secondary school in Nottingham it's my second deputy headship I was deputy head of school in Derby before that and I've been in senior leadership I'm about to enter my eighth year of senior leadership, so it's um it's been it's been an interesting journey, and I mean I'm always developing. I'm currently doing my MPQH, and I'm also uh, an Ofsted inspector as well. So I've been an Ofsted inspector for for two years. So this is why when I say I could never have done that, <laughs> there's no way that I would have been able to have given you the actual props and the accolades that just needs to be given to you for everything that you've just expressed and explained. Um, that you've done. I'm even more excited. Thank you for giving me your time. Like, this is really, really awesome um, to have you on here and have 
the conversation that we're going to have today. Where it's probably useful to start off with is kind of some of the stuff that you've intimated before uh, in terms of your the arc of your careers. I guess the first place I want to take the conversation is with regards to how has being Black um, or the identity of Blackness informed any part or all of those parts of the journey that you've taken so far of your careers? Um, I, I think being Black has informed my entire life. Uh, in terms of professional sport, however, it wasn't necessarily something that I was desperate to get into. And I didn't want to be the um, the cliche kind of, the almost cliche, the kind of expected story of a black sportsman, which was, you know, I was close to being excluded. And then the PE teacher came up to me and joined me with a local club. That's not what happened. I was always into education. That was always um, encouraged. I wouldn't say pushed. I would say encouraged in the family. I mean, my mum became a teacher, started teaching when I was in, well, fourth year, now new money, ten, year 10. So it wasn't anything, it wasn't from childhood. Um, so it was, you know, when I went into sport, uh, it wasn't, I was quite conscious of the fact that I didn't necessarily want to be that story. And um, it was never the case. I, I wanted to get my education. In fact, my younger brother played cricket for Essex and signed straight after his GCSE. So he was a professional cricketer before me. Mm-hmm. And I was into my education and I had a place at Loughborough um, University to go and study PE and sport or to study sport. I actually can't remember the exact course. And, uh, but my brother said to me, you're, you know, you, you're too, you have too much ability to, to not go into sport. But I was very conscious even at that stage that that's, I didn't want to be seen as, as in that kind of cliche stereotypical image. So when I went into sport, um, and funny enough, when I was trialing for county cricket clubs, um, my, my primary school was a batsman who could literally bowl a little bit. And I mean, I'll keep that very broad in terms of a little bit. And however, when I even going for trials, they saw um, six foot five. They saw six foot five black male. And at the time with West Indies cricket dominating from the 70s yeah. to that stage, which was the early, early 90s when I was going to trials, uh, seeing my size and frame, they presumed I must be a fast bowler. I recall going to trials at certain counties where I'll be bowling for a long, long, long time and then insisting I was a batsman and then batting for, say, five, ten minutes at the end of the session, of the trial session. So even that in itself and those those stereotypes that I faced even early in my cricket career, they became a barrier until I joined what's called the Harringay Cricket College, which is based in, in Tottenham mm. and became the London Cricket College. It was like a cricket academy and I joined there as a, it was a means to get trials for counties and it was primarily because with it being based in Harringay, the, the primary cohort were black. And there was a lot of guys who graduated in inverted commas from the cricket college who went on to play county cricket. Um, a name a few, Mark Lane, who played for England. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Paul Weeks, who played for Middlesex. Frankie Griffith played for Derbyshire. Key Piper played for Warwickshire. There's, there's well, there's 15 plus um, people who graduated before I even was at the college. Amazing. So therefore, that was my avenue to, to, to get a proper go. And what we'd do, we'd go and play county reserve teams or county second teams. And I kind of built my CV up mm. that way. We're saying, look, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm writing for an opportunity. And this is what I've done against county second teams, right. against contracting professionals. Mm. So I then was offered a, um, a trial at Derby um, as a batsman, which was good. Um, and I did actually go to trials for Derby a couple of years before and didn't get anywhere. That was just an invite. 
played a game. My first game, it was a three-day match because, you know, I play, second team play three days, first class you play four days. And um, I got, I think in my first game, 99 in the first inning. It should have got 100, 99 and then 77 in the second. Okay, um, so, so big boy numbers already. Obviously, yeah, it was a yeah. good, yeah, it was a good start. And then from that moment on, Derby registered me for the rest of the season. And then I signed a full with a viewed sign a full contract for the start of the next season. So that's essentially how I got into cricket. But that, funny enough, it was the cricket college that provided me that that opportunity, as opposed to going around quite a few counties where they saw a big, broad-shouldered black man and said, "You must be able to bowl fast." I could not bowl fast. So even that in the initiative was was a challenge. Fully, and 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 I've never been sporty enough to to be acknowledged yeah. in that respect. But um. <laughs> You know, even down to, I'm thinking about other sports that are similar. I'm thinking about other time periods that that the same thing still happens. Even when I was a kid to when I've been a teacher of black kids, um, Caribbean background as well. And so, you know, the automatic thing is, oh, track and field is your thing. Great, run. Like there's 100 meters, there's cross country, there's what it like, pick one of the running things and run. And I actually prefer doing things like discus. I actually quite like doing those kind of like the, the sort of field things more so than the track things. But there was like a, a automatically from the PE teachers, like a hedge your bets. We're just going to assume that because of the background that you're from, you're just going to do better at this particular thing. Never mind if you're interested or, or not interested in it. Um, and so that's one of the things that distinctly comes to my mind about where I enjoy doing the sort of inter-school cohort things. I was pushed to do more track, but I actually enjoyed doing more field. Um, and then I'm also thinking about a kid, even in their school that I taught, who currently is in the States uh, on a scholarship at a university, but he was phenomenal at rugby in school. And I remember there's a whole conversation that the school was trying to push him down to signing with a rugby team quite early, Caribbean boy as well. And his parents were just like, they, they were on it. And I'm glad that they were on it because they were very much just like, but he's also bright enough to explore other options and not just, it's exactly as you're, you're intimating, what I think was being seen of him is like he's uh, he's developed for his age. He's very good at this sport. You know, we can just see him being very good for our team, a utility tool for our team as a person who can just get us um, a whole bunch of points, progress our team forward, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, his parents were able to kind of flip that. And it sounds like this will happen at the, the cricket college where yeah. is, is there another way that we can get you exposure? Is there another way that we can get you um, the, the same end point, but actually isn't a sort of brutalizing, perhaps what happens in the States NFL situation where you you doing all these tries and tries and tries and tries to get into a sports team. And then when you don't get into a sports team, what then? Because there's nothing really else for you um, around the way. So it's just interesting how time and space yeah. macro micro even that is, is still so interesting that there's a way that particularly as you say like black men or black boys who develop faster in the eyes of those who can make use of that will try find a way to um exploit it early so yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you managed to dodge that and that you were able to get to where you got through for a different means than what was perhaps being presented to you initially yeah and also i mean there were, there were other people at my school where you know, it was almost if, well, your education could come second now. I remember my year nine, well, third year, options, taking my options, and I all the options I chose were not granted. And then back then, you didn't argue with the teachers. You didn't, there wasn't an options process. They said what you want to do, and then you kind of filled in a booklet. And everything I chose, I didn't get. And I remember the deputy head, and it was a, 
he was um, a cricket-loving man, and I chose languages, and he said, well, they don't play cricket in France, so you don't need to do that. Jesus. You don't play cricket in Spain, you don't need to do that. Go and do uh, film studies. It's just watching TV. It's a piece of cake. And, you know, I chose drama because I love drama. No, 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 no. You don't have to do that. Go and do that because, you know. Never you mind know, what you like. Never mind. Like. Because you're going to be a cricketer. <laughs> exactly. And I actually at that time had no interest in being a professional um, cricketer. I was playing representative cricket. I played East London. You play Essex schools. You know, South and West, you play well, South, you play Surrey. North and West, you play Middlesex, etc. But I played Essex schools, but I... That was because I just happened to be good enough to play for us yeah. schools. I yeah. never had, there were children there, young people there who had a burning ambition to be professional sports people. And they were invariably the private school kids because cricket is elitist. You know, it still, mm. it always yeah. has been, still, always will be, still, still is. Mm. And, um, you know, there were, so, you know, East London, like the private schools, you know, your Forest, your Felsteads and what have you, you know, they were Chigwell, they were the kids who, they had all the gear. They had the money to afford the gear because cricket gear yeah, can be expensive and we had no money growing up. Even if so we very, have the grounds to play the cricket, right? And then have the grounds, exactly. Happen. And they could practice. I mean, we played, we used to turn up in the playground at school every morning, about four or five of us and, you know, tennis ball and do whatever we could do. And, um, and there was a local club that I played for. So there was always, in my mind, I didn't see that as a future of me because I didn't see I was a part of that. So I just enjoyed playing and perhaps that actually helped because I just played and enjoyed it as opposed to putting this world of pressure on myself that I had to do well because it meant this, because it didn't mean that. It was just another cricket game to me. So that, that helped that helped a lot because um, it kept my enthusiasm for the game as opposed to thinking, I've got to, I've got to do this. I've got I to do it. Even, yeah. yeah, yeah. It wasn't like that for me. Even when I was, I was putting this elite squad to go down to Essex County Cricket Club and with a, a good coach, a guy called Ray, he was a good, really good guy. And we were we were there and he put us in a bowling machine at 90 plus miles an hour with a tennis ball so we could learn to play fast bowling. And even then, these guys were all serious and, you know, and me, I was just enjoying it and I was trying to hit the ball all parts and trying to be Viv Richards and, and not, be, not necessarily pulling it off. But I had a go, whereas all these guys were ultra serious and that, I think that, that helped that helped a lot really because it just even when I went to trial for Derbyshire it, it was like okay I'm gonna try it, I'll give my best but if it doesn't work it doesn't work because I, I'm I'm going university anyway so I think with that putting that little that less pressure on myself actually helped a lot I'm also gonna make a, a hard turn in this like a handbrake turn at this point because the educator in me wants to kind of say which I know is like perhaps fallacy, right? I'm probably just given false situations, mm. but because you touched upon the fact that you enjoyed maths and this is now what you ended up teaching, yeah. I can imagine, and even when you said it the first time, the thing that went through my head is like the idea of when you think about, um, oh, it's gone out of my head now, deg- like angles and degrees. And so like thinking about basketball, so if you bounce it here, where's it going to go? If you do those kind of things, where's it going to go? And then you make the point around you know, the machine shooting out a ball at you at 90 uh, miles per hour. And then you're thinking to yourself, where can I hit it? What can I do? What does it do if it hits the bat at this point, at that angle, at this height? Mm. And I'm not saying that that means that you're a mathematician, but I can see the mathematical purposes of oh, like yeah. just even that in that moment. So the handbrake yeah. turn is thinking about, so how now then do we get from 
there into and I know that you mentioned about unqualified PE teacher and then you you made a conscientious decision to go into maths teaching um yeah how was that informed by identity and I know you touched it already about not wanting to be a one-trick pony and pegged in yeah. so I'd love to know how that influenced or yeah how your identity yeah. influenced that decision well I, I can remember the point where um for me it was it, it, it wouldn't have made mean much to other people who were there but I recall my first role in education was working in Luton for Luton School Sports Partnerships I worked as a school sports coordinator absolutely wonderful job um, great people I worked with learned a lot from them they were really supportive um, I still occasionally stay in touch with the people who line manage me because I work for the local authority but I worked with two secondary schools where I taught PE in the timetable where they had a PE to give them time for development time and then I had a role across the whole school sports partnership and that was developing leadership um, for young people and also CPD for staff etc cetera, etc cetera. but I recall being at an event and for some people it would have been something or nothing but I recall there was some um, it was an athletics event and there were some there were some black students who essentially were saying I don't need to study because I'm just going to do this like sir so they, they made they kind of made a point like me because it was you know it was quite clear at sportsmen doing p and i for me that was like a no 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 Absolutely. because my direction of my degree changed i was doing a funny enough i was doing a just a couple of the degree i was doing initially but i changed the direction of it and made it a purely from that moment on it became a purely mass focus because yeah. not because i had done i had done a couple of mass modules anyway but um because I just liked it but I changed the, the and everything I did every module I did through the open was purely maths it was either maths in itself or it was maths education mm. so um, when I completed my degree I, as soon as I completed it I went and even while I, even at that point I stopped teaching PE and then I got jobs teaching maths unqualified as an unqualified maths teacher and that was around 2005 I started doing that. Mm -hmm. So 2003, 2002 was my last professional match. I announced my retirement because I was injured in 2003. Did the PE school sports for two years. 2005, I started my work as an unqualified maths teacher before completing my degree. And that's really um, poignant. Like, yeah. just that piece, around, and, and, you know, just something that, um, you know, we recognise, and I, I know that you recognise it from the fact you just mentioned it, but um the whole idea of representation so when when the conversation says representation matters of all identities not just race not just gender etc cetera, etc cetera, but like that you're already seeing that you are being used as in whichever which way it goes because you can look at it as being like a positive representation for some of these young people where it's yeah. like i want to be as uh, famous as him as notorious as him as successful as him or there's all these different things and or you're being used as the fall guy where I need to really worry about it because if he's done it, um, I can also do it too from just seeing where you've ended up, not seeing the work that you've had to do behind the scenes to end up where you've ended up. There's a way that the more representation that there is of a person or an identity or a, uh, a, a track record, there's, there's more to interrogate there versus yeah. looking at the appearance as presented and saying, that's what I want to be or that's what I don't want to be without understanding how you've got there. So I think it's, yeah. it's a, something to just really pull out there that when we talk about representation mattering, 
it's hugely important because I also would feel really awkward if, if kids are saying, I don't need to do anything because uh, please don't call my name. Because if it, if it fails yeah. on your watch, I don't want to be involved in now having to think about, am I responsible for something uh, negative happening for you versus have I given you an opportunity to see all the ways that this um, could have gone. There's a school that I worked in in Hastings very quickly. And I remember the same thing. I'm, I'm a history teacher by background and I was trying to get the kids to do their coursework. And the kids said to me, it's a white boy. Um, I don't really need history, you know, sir. It's like, okay, say more. Well, my dad works in a car dealership and basically I'm just going to inherit his car dealership. And so I don't need this GCSE thing. Furthermore, I don't really need any GCSEs because I'm just going to get my, my dad's car dealership. And there are so many ways that this conversation, I wanted it to go, you know, and the macro one being like, regardless of basically automation of things means that your car, your dad's car dealership is likely going to perhaps finish with him. Like, even if you do inherit the dealership, the likelihood that you're going to inherit the work that he's been able to take on because of where cars manufacturing is at the moment, it's unlikely that that's going to be your situation. But even then it's trying to think about, well, representation matters here because this is Hastings there are few black people there. It's like the number one Brexit vote in place in, in England at the time. Um, so my identity is not necessarily going to shift his thinking alone, but it's also thinking about what representation hasn't come your way to also recognise that, like, you are closer to France than London is. You are closer to, like, you, you kind of need a different set of representation to, to work out that, you can't just land there and say that I don't need because what's already inherited to me is just going to set me up for success. Like, how are you not, how has no one introduced you to other ways of thinking? Yeah, it's, it's shocking how reductive representation can still be for young people. And they're, they're honest when they tell you why they don't need things and why they do need things based on what they've seen in front of them. So yeah, just a part to pull over on in terms of what you said, because I think it's, it's hugely important. But even with that, the, the the whole perception of what a professional sports person is and what 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 that means, the fact that they that they would even think that they don't need an education. Okay. In fact, the most important thing you need as a sports person is your education, not just because the obvious thing in terms of, well, you might not make it, or even if you do make it, you might get injured, or the profession you've chosen may not necessarily reap the financial you know, rewards that you're looking for, all those things, apart from the fact that if you are a sports person, you have so many things you have to manage. First, you have to manage yourself and your behavior. And there's an education around that. You also have to manage your money and your finances. You have to manage your contracts. You have to be, so you have to be literate. You have to be financially able. From a cricket point of view, you have to be numerate because you're constantly dealing with numbers, not just angles. I'm batting, we're chasing this. We need this such an up and over. And so therefore, for the next 10 overs, I'm going to do this. The next five, I'm going to do this. And that's going to do that. And that's going to result in this. Um, but just the whole being able to, the whole point of education is it empowers you, but also it liberates you. It gives you the opportunity. You know, we're not just take, getting a piece of paper. We're building thinking skills and life skills within education. And as a sports person, if you are just about you being able to hit a ball or you be able to kick a football or you be able to throw something or you be able to do something, you are just restricting yourself. 
And that means if you are, if you happen to excel at that sport, you leave yourself wide open wide to open. so many things that could happen mm. that you won't know what's hit you because you've not educated yourself. And not just in the sport, just generally got your education. There are agents out there who will take higher percentages off your thing. If you can't read a contract and you've got an agent, Believe. just be prepared to lose some money. <laughs> so, you know, there's all those things. If you are... If you're a sports player and you play a sport which doesn't necessarily, and you don't play internationally, it's not, for example, Premier League football or something that earns a high amount of money, you may, you've got a mortgage. You may need to invest money that in 10 years where you may retire, you have put either something down in your mortgage or by that time you're going to have children. So you're going to, all these things you need to think about. Absolutely. And it's not just about, if you're thinking about the now and how good you are or even things like managing yourself in the media, managing yourself, there's so many things that come Honestly. with being a sport. Honestly, you can go like that. Totally, and the adjacent one is is um, the entertainment industry, the music, yeah. acting, like that's more where my students that I've taught have gone into, and some of them have made it. Some of them have been like biggish names in in the in the industry, and that's exactly the same thing. Where I'm just like, okay, let's let's now see how, because uh, you're talented. No one could ever deny your talent. It's a case of, as you said, reading the contract. Like you need to have people that. You need to first of all know what what a contract is, right? Yeah. And you need to even know like what to look out for in contracts, what those kind of things are. But the part you said at the end, I think, is the is the most uh, important thing is around how to manage yourself in the moment and how sometimes not to even give the game away. So you might be thinking yeah. certain things, but you know that now is not the right time to say it. And even in trial runs of that, with me as perhaps their black teacher, where I'm just like, you know, you can't say that like and it's not even a case of I'm saying I'm not shutting you down I'm not I'm not curtailing your your expression no. but it's also like you can't bring that to me and expect me to to accept that or you can't just put that yeah. out there and not expect that there's a consequence to that so there's just certain things like that that um yeah I I, I fully agree with you about like education does so much more than just the paperwork that you leave with at the end of GCSEs or A-levels fully 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 agree so yeah um with that, I think like you, we've already touched onto the onto the other part of the question. And so maybe this is, or the, the conversation, maybe this is more still to do with where you are now at senior leadership and, and everything else. But I'm wondering if there's any like formative experiences or lessons that like you've learned from um, going through yourself. Sometimes it's, it's watching other people adjacent to you going through it. And it's like, okay, I see the lesson from that. I don't need to go through that. You even mentioned that, for example, your mom went into education late um by comparison so you didn't grow up in a household where your mum was automatically a teacher it happened later on in in mm -hmm. your childhood but then also the thing that I really want to blow up and amplify is that your mum was the first black head teacher in two different boroughs which amazing like that's just that's just something that goes down in the history books really and truly um I just wonder if there's any formative experiences either from her from yourself from other places that you've learned from and what it's kind of taught you yeah, I mean, from my mum, she never, <laughs> she never talked much about her experiences. But um, you know, we we knew. I think even prior to her going into teaching, it became aware of um, kind of some of the experiences because we would deal with them on. The, my mum would deal with them on the street, literally on the street, where people would say things to her. Particularly, I'll say in the seventies and in the eighties, but sure. people would say things. Um, even little things. I remember being at a parents even in primary school, and the head teacher saying to my mum, um, "Your your boys are so well mannered. What is it? What does their father do?" 
And my father was never around. And it's just the little things like that, which you see those things. I used to watch how she dealt with things. And I remember, um, you know, um, going to my mum, coming back from school or somewhere one time and asked my mum what, you know, someone, this was, I'll probably be six, seven years old, you know, what's a, what's a wog? And mum said, what? And, I said, Cause, and my mum would march out, this is march on and knock on doors. I mean, she was fearless. And what I, what I learned from that was not to be ashamed of who you are. That, that's what I learned a lot. And also be, be proud of who you are. And when you need to stand up for yourself, do so. I think the thing that I probably learned when I got into, not even education, in sport, because sometimes, it was, well, a lot of time in sport, things that sometimes some people in some places you might play, they might be a bit more vocal. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the thing about sport is it is the ultimate in you have to manage yourself. You can't be like, I mean, if everyone recalls Eric Cantona jumping in the crowd and, you know, come through yeah. kicking a spectator. But there were many times in my, in my career where I had those circumstances in my playing career where I could have done that and, um, and it didn't happen. So it was, I found that I learned very early on, early on that you, I was always constantly going to be tested and I had to learn to manage myself around that and also stay focused on what I was trying to do. And sometimes I managed. And I think the thing was, that I always made sure in that process, I had people around me that I could talk to. Um, so for example, when I was at Derbyshire and some of the experience I had, and not in the Derbyshire change room, because it was a, you know, outside of the normal kind of sports politics, you might get a change room. There wasn't any racial tensions when I was at Derbyshire, far from it. Um, but I had, I was fortunate to have people like Philip DeFreitas, who played for England, Devon Malcolm, um, Alan Warner, who's um, originally from St. Kitts and, and played for Derbyshire, Frankie Griffith. There were, there were black people who played for Derbyshire before me and were in that squad when I was there who I could lean on and talk to about things when I was trying to process things. And I think that was always really, really important. And then when I went into education, I actually found um, a similar experience where I was probably less, you know, in the minority. And in doing that, I had to then look for people to lean on. Or sometimes I wouldn't even say I had to look people. You almost came to each other. So um, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, right. There you are. Right. So you, oh, wow. <laughs> nice to see you. And then you were, you literally like almost, energetically come to each other because you knew you know um, that you had a similar background and experience so for me the learning I mean the amount of racing that growing up in East London was I would say particularly 70s early 80s was was shocking and I learned to manage myself in certain sports situations I played I remember playing I, I was fortunate enough twice to go and play cricket in New Zealand for six months because everyone else is uh, our winter was everyone else's summer so I would go away and play cricket and I remember the first time I went to New Zealand and played cricket I, I was subjected by one person in particular some horrific racial abuse and that was literally me by myself in New Zealand in a province where I was there was one other black guy who played basketball for the province and um, and not forgetting the, 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 the indigenous population the Maoris but it was very, very isolating. And I had to learn about myself, how to manage myself in those situations. And that's always been something like the story of my life. However, I think the older I've got, the more I've spoken out against injustice because that's what I grew up, that's what I grew up seeing. And I think, and I think it's, it became more of a confidence thing because um, I, I, they came to a point where I just said, look, enough, enough's enough. And I ha- I've had those experiences in education as well where, you know, enough's enough. 
yeah let's talk about that a bit more and so far as and this is this is one of the the beacon points of the conversation where I've thrown this question in in conversations with men that I didn't have in there with women with which is regards to the relationship between black identity and gender identity and how that has shaped your particular experience within education um more so and so the reason why I I asked this question is because we are adjacent to there's some things that we both experience as, as black people black men and black women so racism is something that we can both experience but then the added uh, gender um, discrimination of, of sexism is something that black women uh, basically experience they, they, they experience it so there's there's a different angle of and a different way that the two coalesce together in terms of the term misogynoir so the way in which the racism and sexism impound on them but I'm not also forgetting that for black men especially in spaces where perhaps it might be quite female heavy, but white female heavy, uh, or even white male heavy, there's a way that sexism can, or sex, gender discrimination can pop up in ways that it's still hard to explain that this is like a, a gendered conversation that's taken place or a gendered uh, interaction that's taken place because the racism might be more loud about that conversation, or it can't be seen that you as a man could experience um, discrimination based on your gender. But as education is very, very female heavy as well, um, I'm just wondering what you even see in terms of any moments that stick out for you with regards to how you may have been treated because of gender or because of race or where the two of them perhaps have come together um, for you. I would, say, um, I, would say, I would say as a black man, uh, definitely, because again, it, it goes with a stereotype of what how we are seen, just as there is a stereotype for black women. So often, black men are seen, you know, if we speak up, you know, there you go, being aggressive, or you got a chip in your shoulder, and all those kind of things. And I think that there was, you know, there there's been a few a few experiences in education. One that stands out for me was where I was actually subjected to racial abuse and quite horrific racial abuse by a student and. The, the manner which I, I felt was dealt with was not appropriate. I, I think the student got extremely lightly mm. and I challenged, I challenged that, but I challenged it in a professional manner. And um, the, the resultant kind of force, so to speak, using my maths, is that <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a force. I, I, I was subjected to nonstop microaggressions for eight to 10 months. And that was because it was, to me, it was, you know, what is this black man doing? How dare he? And I, all I did was I was professional. I said, I didn't think that sanction, the sanction that was given warranted the behavior that, that was chosen by that student. And it was almost, it, it was almost that point where it's how dare I'd been working there. It was no issue, but all of a sudden, I, it, it, every, anything I did from that point on was wrong. It was an issue. Anything, didn't do an assembly properly. Didn't give students eye contact when I shook their hand. Didn't do that properly. Didn't do that properly you know, failed my appraisal that year. Uh, even though, even though um, the department I led had the best results in the school. But, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was shocking. And it would have, it would have pushed a lot of people over the edge if I didn't have the support network around me. Yeah. It was, it was, it was bad. And I had, but I was fortunate at that point to have such exceptional support and not just my mum, there were other people working education who, Obviously, through my mum, the work that my mum does, because she did work for the Institute of Education, like investing in diversity. She 
co-wrote the EAP Equal Access Promotion mm-hmm. Program through the NUT, mm-hmm. uh, now NEU. So she's done a lot of work in terms of developing people from, you know, whether it's BAME or whatever you want to call it, backgrounds into leadership. And with that network that she had, I had the opportunity to lean on them, but it was very, I felt very, very isolated at that, at that time. And it was, it was aggression and it was aggression with a smile. And, Hmm. but, and that's the worst kind of aggression because they're trying to act like they were, they were trying to help develop me. Mm-hmm. And it was it wasn't it was it was it was just straight wrong. I, I spoke to my union. They said you got a choice, grievance or 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 find another job. So I didn't put my union with much help. You know. Uh, and so therefore I kind of felt a bit on my own and I was. I was um one of probably two black people working in the school, uh three maybe, and um it was it was very isolating. However, as as tough as it got, and it did get really tough, and it, it was, there were there were tears at times because it was mentally challenging and not fair. It was not fair. Um, I had the thing that always helped me in terms of my experience was the fact that I grew up in a single parent family with a woman who raised three boys by herself with the support of the family and got to where she got to. Right. If I didn't have that that mental leverage in my head, in terms of well, you know, my mum has got has done this. And if I didn't have other people around me who were who were in my ear supporting me, it might it might it would it probably would have driven me out of education. Um, that being said, I do recall some people, black males, telling me to ease back and you know just told a line because because they'd been in that position themselves and did not and didn't want me to go through that. However, that's one thing I would never do, but I would never be unprofessional about it. So I think that was the challenge for me because it was, it was so harrowing to the point where it was, it was, well, long and short, it was bullying. Um, but then it was try it was bullying wrapped up in there. I'm trying to, we're trying to support you here and trying to develop you. And it wasn't, it was developmental, but not in the way that they would have planned. It developed me to, 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 become even more resilient than my life experience had taught me and also to go back, go in and invest in myself so that I could be in a position, not necessarily straight away, but in time to move on. And that's what I decided to do. Other people may have walked out. Some people might have left education totally. I decided that I was going to go inwards and literally go to work, focus on me, focus on the people that I still had a responsibility for in terms of leading or line managing or whatever, focus on that and almost not pay attention to the one, two, three people who were deliberately trying to put me in my place because how dare you as a black man challenge us? And that was the bottom line. How dare you challenge us? And, um, but I didn't, it wasn't about challenging. It was about what's right and fair. And that's how I've lived my life for what I believe to be right and fair. So I have no regrets about what I felt I had to do at the time in terms of standing up for myself or how I had to manage myself through that. But it was very, very, very difficult. And I wouldn't necessarily advocate everyone going through that because, and I may actually advise people depending on the individual circumstance to walk away sooner or earlier. But the only problem with that is is if you walk away so damaged that you can't then have that impact on someone else because where you go to next, you're still carrying those scars and that's difficult. We do carry scars, but I was at a point where I'm going to, I'm here to do a job. 
I will do my job irrespective of what you say or do. And I will do my job. And then when I am ready, you're not going to kick me out. I'm going to go when I'm ready. And that's, I only learned that on the back of what I, people in my, like my mum and other people had gone through that helped me get through that situation because it was comfortably the toughest part point of my whole education career. No doubt about it. No, no doubt about it. Like, honestly, thank you for sharing that. And part of me, like, just letting you speak is because the magnitude and gravity of what you're saying. Yeah. To go to a workplace where you are literally, you know that when you go there and when you walk there, nothing that you do is going to be right. Absolutely. No matter how hard you work, no matter what you do, someone's going to find a way to make make it like you're bad. Mm-hmm. And that's their del- and that's deliberate. It's not accidental. It's deliberate to the point where you actually will be put on an informal support plan, not formal, but an informal mm-hmm. support plan. My mm-hmm. informal support plan lasted all of fifteen minutes mm-hmm. because the person who was supposed to line manage me and tell me well, what you're planning to do, I then went bam 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 bam, and this is a strategy, and this is my action plan, and this is this, and this is that, and he went, oh, um, okay. You were more prepared than he was. And that was it. 15 minutes. My, my informal support stopped after 15 minutes. This is the thing. Because the person supporting me, I was, I was actually, without being disrespectful, I was doing my job better than they were. Exactly that, though. And it's not disrespectful. It's truthful, right? And yeah. it's, it, I guess my mind's going so many places. And that, like even how you're, you're speaking about it, the passion that you're speaking about it with is because it's, so, it's still clearly so vivid with you. And it's, I guess, where I'm also silent is I've done this, I've done about 20-odd, 30-odd episodes of this podcast. And without a doubt, like I would say a smooth 90% of the people that I've spoken to um, have had a situation where they've either been underestimated in the place of work that they've been, the place of work that they've been has been hostile towards them. Um, There's an element of you've reached the ceiling of where you're going to go in this place. And so we're just going to, as you said, like put you in your place, which is to remind you that you will never be above where we co-sign you to be above in this situation. There's all of these things that, that keep coming up. And, you know, I'm there thinking about what, what young black men go through in school. Um, I was watching a TV show yesterday and it's dramatization, but you know, these things are often rooted in what people would likely do in that moment. And this person was accused of something at work and he had a bunch of people around him because it's like the fallout from what he'd done at work was going to ricochet with quite a few different people. And he took a, um, uh, use it for your fireplace, like the sort of skewer thing. I yeah, yeah. The wrong name for it, but you get yeah, the imagery. Yeah, yeah. And he took it to his TV and he like smashed up his whole TV. And everyone that was in the space was just like, okay, well, this is not a great reaction from you. But there's almost like a level of, but we understand that you need to get the frustration out, even though you're doing it in a very childish tantrum kind of way. Let us let you get the emotion out. And I'm thinking, how often is that co signed and sanctioned and explained away? And I've taught in schools where boys have punched walls. White boys mm-hmm. have punched walls and teachers are like, yeah, but you know, he's really angry sometimes. Cool. But then the black boy who perhaps come in late to school or whatever the situation is, it's been a low level um, interaction. And exactly the thing that you pointed out where the response to their initial response 
were so overblown, and this is now a power play situation, mm -hmm. that you as a teacher has now sanctioned, you kissed your teeth, for example, and so a kissing of teeth is now a two-hour sanction or an exclusion sanction, whereas the white boy who's rolled his eyes and tutted doesn't get the same thing, or oh, come on, Johnny, don't, don't do that, that's not cool. Where is the sort of, where's the equal response in that? And so what I'm thinking of is, to your point, is how interesting you've had to maintain a, uh, an element of I'm going to keep going into this place knowing that every single day the the operation from them um, is going to be hostile towards me and what I have to do in return is consistently have this armor around me of keeping it together keeping myself there all those kind of things and how emotionally draining and taxing that is but then also how well weathered into that experience we are oftentimes as black folk that we just know from school all the way through perhaps that there's just going to come a time where someone's going to for a hobby make you know where you stand and you have to just take it <laughs> and yeah it's, it's just interesting how we are expected to constantly absorb 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 but where do we get to smash up a tv where do we get to you know let our frustrations out nowhere because if we do then we've validated the idea that we're the angry black X, Y, Z. So what is available to us? And so even sometimes when some people say, oh, you're very, you're very angry about the situation. It's like, well, what other emotion would you say I should do in this moment? Like, is, if, if anger's not the correct one, run me through your Rolodex. Like, what other emotion would be more appropriate at this moment for me to express? And when they're, when they're asked that question, they can't think of one. But it's just the anger is just something that they don't want to deal with, not the underlying root cause of why would I be irritated or angry or upset or disappointed? None of that matters. It's just contain it because we just don't want to, to see it in this particular space. It's interesting how many of us, however we come at the, the conversation, is something mm -hmm. about having to keep it together in a place of work because not only are you being tested, but you're also being gaslit to explode and this is the test is to keep it together but we're always tested always I was tested in 10 years old being in a shop when a person's looking around the corridor to see if i'm going to steal something you know you tested when you're coming from you know when you're walking i remember back in early 90s late 80s early 90s coming from the club none of us even touching a top drop of alcohol in the club walking down the road police stopping to talk to us there's guys across the road drunk as skunks not even saying a word to him and asking us things. So the test, the test began from birth. So that's the thing. The thing that that kind of I can say with a kind of smirk or a smile on face, or that amuses me, is that why when when it, I think back to the, some of these situations, I think why are you actually bothering? This has been this has been how it's how it's been. So why are you actually bothering to come at me with stuff that I've seen thirty time, time and time again. 100, 2,000 times before, yeah. but you're going to try to come with a different angle and think that we're not going to thought that, that we can't see it. And that's, I think sometimes that's the point where you expect when you are in a professional organization and you've worked hard and you've got your qualifications that you don't expect that to happen. Absolutely. But in, in what life's taught me is it's still, you're still dealing yeah, with people. And within that organization, there are some fantastic people and there are some people who just will, are not prepared to get it or even try to understand your experience or your perspective so that it
easy option is to get at you mm-hmm. to the point where hopefully you are out of the way. So therefore they won't have, they have if there's no you. black, if there's no black men in a school, for example, or no black men in all, we don't have to do with racism yeah. because That's it's not there. So then if, if you remove the, the problem, you, you're the problem that we don't have to address the fact that whether it's in this school, in this community, in, in whatever it is, that there is a problem here Absolutely. where we're not going to address it. So the way we address it is actually you just be quiet. And if, you, you know, if you're not happy, I understand. However, you know, that person moves on and there's a kind of mix. You do your job really well and there'd be like, okay, yeah, that's great. But sometimes there's a bit of a, actually that's a relief because now that's one less thing for us Absolutely. to deal with. And that's just the facts of it. No, I agree. And, and so there's, there's one thing that I was wondering if I should raise it and you, you touched on it. So let's go there as well. Like the, one of the observations that I've come to see with the way in which how black men and black women are treated in these moments, which is part of the reason why I asked this question, um, is I think, and this, this from your um, trajectory to where you are now with cricket, with sports, with all these kind of things, there's an element of, I find, with black women, uh, when black women say enough is enough and actually, do you know what, I'm just, I'm holding a line, I'm holding a boundary and I'm pushing back here, you have the typical tropes of, you know, the defiant black woman, the angry black woman, the untamable, like the sort of animalistic ways that, you know, uh, they put upon black folk in particular is typically given to women, partly because of sexism, because we need to control our women and partly because blackness and women and womanhood is a bit of a myth when it comes to some like, some uh, understandings of whiteness and, and white supremacy and such. But what I find with black men is that there's often, you kind of said it just towards the end there as well, there's an element of, but we gave you a chance, we, we put you on, we co-signed you, we allowed you, you know, some space to kind of, we let you into the locker room in essence. Like we, we mm. thought you're one of us as men until you've made it clear that you're not one of us because you're black. And so this thing around uh, how black men are often treated in retaliation to the things that they bring up is typically a sense of you are ungrateful for mm. the opportunity that was afforded to you in the first place. Not only that you're not that you are uncontrollable, not that you are, you know, without reason, not that you are um, without sense. It's a case of you've made an, uh, an abject choice to go and defy us. And so as a result, um, you no longer deserve our pity, our mercy or any of those kind of things, because you've made a conscious choice to pull away from what could otherwise be a safe space here if you were to shut up about blackness and just hold on to your maleness. And so I find that with sports people typically, like, you know, Colin Kaepernick, for example, um, Lewis Hamilton, for example, a lot of like the, the, the men in sports where it's a case of when you say, you know, look at all of the England footballers, the black England footballers, the moment that you say actually, uh, no, <laughs> it's the case of, but we allowed you to play for our country. We allowed you to score our goals. We allowed you to put on our shirts. We allowed you to put on our clothing and you're ungrateful, which is a different charge, I think, that I've experienced or that I've observed with what's typically given to Black women in terms of how their defiance is, is um, characterised. Yeah, and also, I mean, <laughs> um, it's funny you talk about when they seem the reason why you're seen to be defiant is because they've defined who you are. Right. So the defiance, the perceived defiance of you of, of you being defiant is because they've defined, oh, so we've given you this role. Uh, oh, 
oh, I didn't realize you were you were like other black people. That was oh, oh, you're black. Oh, I didn't, I didn't, I thought that if we give you this role, you were you were going to be one of us. But we are who we are. My experiences define who I am. My background, my culture, my heritage help define who I am. So why would why would you not? Take think that I was going to, you know, so oh, if there's racism, I was just going to laugh it off or, mm-hmm. or just be, oh, you know, that's, how expected. It, it, that's the thing. I, yeah, I, but I it, but it's expected. Like expected. Yeah. It's 100% expected yeah. and it's not expected and it's not acceptable. No. And I think we've turned the corner, I think, with that, um, in that people won't accept, we won't accept it anymore mm-hmm. because it's not acceptable. Mm-hmm. People are asking about things being fair. You know, and in life, every human being wants to be treated fairly. fairly. And sometimes people's understanding of what fair is, is totally messed up uh, because they'll think, oh, okay, well, if we, if we team, if you talk things like equal opportunities, some people will say, well, you don't need equal opportunities about the best person for the job, but that's not how it works because that's not how we're, that's not how it's right. seen and how people are perceived. So therefore, you need equal opportunities and you need to open these dialogue to understand what that what actual um, whether you want to call it, you know, subconscious or unconscious bias or whatever you want to call it, how that is and how that actually plays out. Mm-hmm. And I, I even have, even I have a bit of a conflict with the term unconscious bias because yeah, I think, <laughs> I, I don't think it's, I don't think it is unconscious. I don't think it is unconscious. Um, it's so intended. We can call it it's intended. Yeah, if it's intended, I'm not sure how it's unconscious. Yeah. I don't think how you can, con- how you can treat someone in a manner that makes them feel so low and you are making it very, very clear that they're different from other people that how you can unconsciously be biased. That's, I, to me, yeah, I agree. a bit of an more on myself. Mm-hmm. That's just my opinion. So therefore, it's highly important that in, rather than try and pigeonhole what you believe someone's experience is or what who they are or how you define them, you might want to ask them how they define themselves oh, and, actually have a, and actually have a listening ear and listen to their experience oh, yeah. I recall, actually, to be fair, one interview I had for a job um, for a role within education, and it was, tell me how you, how you, how you got to this point now. And I thought it was a, a, very, a, yeah. a very important question. But, and I answered it very honestly and truthfully. And I thought that wasn't a bad question. No. But then it depends how they receive the answer as well, doesn't it? So it is important. If people are prepared to, to understand other people's experiences, particularly those who are in a minority, and therefore, how are you going to address it? You can't address it the same as everyone else because mm-hmm. you don't know how many times I've been through mm-hmm. what I've been through and how you, through your behavior, how you are replicating the same thing. And if they don't think they are, well, they are, and you are, and that's not fair. And there are loads of great, because we can talk, you know, about racism to a blue in the face, but there are loads of, and I will say this quite openly and quite Honestly, there are loads of great white educators, sure. great white head teachers who who will give everyone will have a literally open and fair process and will give people opportunities. But by the same token, there's not necessarily enough of that. And also, similarly, if you think about schools and how schools are run, we have a lack of diversity within governorship. And again, that then lessens the people's understanding of people's experience. Because I've been a governor as well. And I, I thought when I was a governor in a school, which was multicultural, I think me being around that table, particularly when dealing with um, exclusion uh, meetings, and um, I think that helped. And that's the other thing that we need to probably think about. 
I think no, you absolutely. And like the people who are not educators who listen to this, people who are parents, people who are who mm. are carers, people who just have young people around, people who are just not even in education but are professionals elsewhere. Like that is a role to get into, like to be a governor, to be adjacent to a school in your area or out the area, whatever it is. And it's I guess why I say that is that the thought process for me, it goes back to that point about meritocracy, about the best person for the job. Given the history and you know we don't talk about it in the UK because we give terms to specific things when we want to be hazy about where they could apply elsewhere so when we talk about segregation we'll say that that's an American experience but actually segregation is also having an empire where everybody in the UK um, who is white at the particular times of when the spoils of empire was coming back to the UK believes that they are the only people best suited for the job because they've never had to experience any difference of those who are part of said empire that exist elsewhere. So when we have these notions of the best person for the job, well, what you're actually telling me is that I don't even recognize you as being valid for this job. So when we say, oh, the best person for the job is the person who gets the job, we have to take into account the segregation of when there were schools where which didn't have any Black folk in there. When Black folk came in the Windrush era and we're looking at... Um, what happened with the schools that they created, the sync schools that they created, like you are still as regular white folk in England, the United Kingdom, if you like, are still going to school believing that the best of the best exists where you are in your school, not realizing that on a policy level, on a macro level, on a societal level, there have been certain people who have been actively pushed out of that pool. So when the pool comes to say, who is the best for this job, all you're left with is homogeneity because you've just you've actively segregated who else could be applicable for said job and said role so now when you're getting the generations that say no I'm also as qualified I'm also as experienced I'm also as competent I'm also as good I'm also as talented there is a level of shock because it's a case of I've not been trained to see you as my competition because the schooling the education the rhetoric the messaging that I've been receiving has never had you as part of that crew of people that I should even consider. Um, And so that's part of how, you know, when they talk about the best person for the job, that is the mindset that the best person for the job is the only people that I've experienced in my schooling, in my education, in my university degree, in my social settings, in my things. And if you don't have a range of different backgrounds in that, you will forever just see the best of the best as being what looks like you, which is why personally, like I used to love going up against Oxbridge folk for jobs. I'm just like, come, let's go. Like if I've got an interview for the job, I'm getting the job. And at the end of the day, if we're both at the interview, then it didn't matter that you went to Oxford and Cambridge because they still said yes to me. So I'm not looking at you as being above me. I'm not scared of you. I'm not deferring to you. I'm not feeling any kind of way about it because if it mattered, they would have had another stream for people like me who didn't go to Oxbridge, but they don't and I'm here. And I'm getting this job. <laughs> and nine times out of 10, I get the job. So it's, mm-hmm. I just find that as a very interesting thing for, for people to think about. Like, where has segregation meant that you have not really seen the full spread and range and quality of everybody, all the ingredients that could make up for this particular place? Where has that been pushed to the side? And so all you believe is great is your experience. Yeah. And also you get within that people having that experience, that limited experience, 
sometimes it, that, that experience just continues and continues because if you think about, so for example, invariably, oh, a lot of the time, you'll have black teachers apply for jobs in schools which are, have a largely multicultural because they would feel that from their experience, like I grew up and I can recall the black families who were within half a mile radius of me, I can name them. There was there were two other families and well, where we were in East Ham and then we moved to Manor Park and there was more. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, you can name that. So therefore, there are people who might not even have that experience and then they'll go to school only having that experience and they'll go to university only having experience and they go to work having that experience and then someone comes in who doesn't necessarily look like them and has a different background and there's an uncom- there's an uncomfortability because they because they haven't spent any time trying to even think well you know even to broaden their horizons and broaden their experiences and that's that's what it's about really and if you don't broaden experiences and you have this restrictive view you're always going to be where you're going to be and you're not going to want to let people in and by the same token i would say to to black people by the same token if when you are as a black teacher when you're looking for jobs don't necessarily restrict yourself to um, looking at oh okay I'm I've got to find a job in inner city London Absolutely. in this Birmingham in a, you know um, Nottingham whatever I'm not going to restrict myself but then that takes a bit of gravy because you you don't know what to a degree in your mind you might not be you might be conscious thinking what am I going to be walking into here and sometimes you don't know sometimes your experiences are great sometimes not so great Absolutely. but that could be anywhere and that could be anywhere so that's that's where there's a bit of a bit of a standoff really because you know as a black male in my right mind would I necessarily go and apply for a school which is probably 100% white area no no black staff no no diversity and would I do that I have actually applied for for jobs before in that circumstance I remember one school I applied for but they almost queried with me was I aware that there was no diversity in the school I remember doing that um (laughs) I, I I can I mean it was it was like a comedy sketch thinking about it now, but that's that happens. So I think now in the information area that we're in, I think that what bothers me now in the information area, there is still, even though we're in the information area, there, people can be fed ignorance as much as they can be fed the right information. So therefore, as much as people say we've got smartphones, we got this, we got that, we've also got people who are who were ignorant before spreading more ignorance and have a platform to spread it. So. The, the key thing is, is just irrespective of that, I think us as people have to hold on to who we are and what we stand for. And if people don't understand that, that's on them. I wouldn't say it's so much on us. I think we, we spend a lot of our time compromising, yeah. but sometimes that compromise is to our own detriment. And I remember at points in my career where I can't, I wouldn't say I did compromise, but you did because you wanted to keep your head down because you didn't want to cause any bother. And it doesn't mean you're troublesome. But I've got to a point now in my life where that's just, you know, that just doesn't happen anymore because I've got I've got children who are not children, really. They're 22, soon to be 20, soon to be 18. And so therefore I have to lead them uh, because they because of the experiences they would have had already. Right? So I can't I'm not necessarily going to, to go around looking to fight people because I definitely didn't do that. But, you know, be proud of who you are and what you stand for. And I think that's really, really important. Such an important point. And I, I mean, I could go into it, but I'm not going to. Um, there's just so many things that you've said. Uh, one thing that I'll just add in, but I'm not going to, I don't want to spend uh, too much time because I want to move on to the next piece is 
Um, something that's occurred to me in the last little while is how so many people identify themselves from the things that they're not versus the things that they are. And I, it's not, it's not like it's only occurred to me recently. I think specifically perhaps with like whiteness and white supremacy and racism and, you know, even looking at it from what England is and how England kind of conducts itself, so much of the vitriol comes from all the things that we are not Mm-hmm. versus okay cool but then what are you like what are you proud of what are the things that makes you as an Englander proud of being English like what's your history saying what's the history of that what's the positivity of that and because there's such an absence of pride in who you are where you come from that a lot of other backgrounds have in part because they have to have it in and you know to refute um put downs or discrimination or whatever the situation is um it comes up from that but then also it just comes up from the fact of you know your history like you know your you know the background you know the certain things you know what a nine night is you know what I don't know you know what soca is versus calypso versus reggae versus dance or like there's just different things that you know and so you don't conflate yourself and trade in all of your background experiences for this thing called white or black or asian which is why you know we a lot of us don't like the term BAME because don't flatten it into this one thing because yeah. actually being Black and then being Black Caribbean and being Black African and being Black British, three different things. And so, you know, where do I get to really pull apart the fabric of who's like what's made me me if you've just flattened this thing to be all the things that I'm not, which is white, which is why the term BAME comes across. So I, I, I also am like, a, I don't, I'm not a fan of BAME, but then I also no. look at it that there's a reason why so many people have problems, perhaps with expressing who they are, because they've never thought about it that way. They're just very quick to tell you all the things that they are not. So, yeah, I don't want to go too, too much into it, but it's just a reflection that's, that's come um, from what you said. Well, I think, I think the other thing with that is people are allowed to be proud. What added to that is people are allowed to be proud of who they are. And who they are, and what they and what they stand for. You can be proud to be English. You can be proud to be white. You can be proud to be black. You can be proud to be Asian. But that, that that's not that's not a statement that then becomes dismissive of other people. Exactly. And I think that's that's where the issue lies is when it becomes dismissive um, and dismissive of other people's experience, dismissive of other people's backgrounds, dismissive, dis, totally dismissive. And then that's where the conflict happens. Solid. You know, I'm proud to be black. Like, that does not mean solid. That, that I'm against white people, far from it, you know, and, um, and, and likewise, I've got friends who are proud to be white, I'm proud to be Asian, you can be proud of who you are, but know what that means and what that actually means in its entirety. And also, you know, if your reference is something that historically means prejudice, then that's not something necessary to <laughs> do some digging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I fully agree with you on that. Um, so I mean you've already touched on it and I, I if there's nothing more to to bring up on that point let's let's move on to the next one but then I'm thinking around so where a central point of this conversation also is generically speaking is this um, conversation around like a cock up or a near miss in your career and where it's come from is when I, I trained through Teach First when I was one of those people and in my cohort they had this event that was like a cheese and wine night because at the time still now I guess it's just like how can we do 
the volunteer services abroad thing in England and make people who otherwise wouldn't do teaching make them feel mm. like teachers a great thing to do. So he had all his cheese and wine nights and people from industry came and one of the nights was called a cock-up club. And it was, the premise was people from industry would come in and tell us about times where they almost, you know, one person like, oh yeah, I almost lost the company 10 million or I did something, something. It's just big things. And I was just like, you lot are audacious. How are you able to say that you did these things and you still went to work the following day and no one, there's no disciplinary, mm-hmm. like nothing happened. and you know exactly what we've talked about before up until that point my knowledge of myself means that I cannot get too many grades lower than a 90 I cannot get too many I can't have too many strikes against my name because I just won't be invited back so it, to, it's just so wild that these people are just like yeah just on a casual Tuesday I blew my mind but then it also then makes me think about how often we as black people hold our cards so close to our chest about things that almost went wrong with us because the stakes are so high that we are built to believe that we can't make mistakes. And so this is the place at which if we were in a staff room in school and it was just a black staff room and all of us were there, what kind of Christmas time, Easter time, birthday time stories that we typically bring up and tell each other as family, what would we say in these moments about times where things were almost a little bit hairy or just a little bit, um, bit of a near miss? And you know, what was the learning from that? in that moment so my ask to you is to think if if it is still relevant as a as a point of conversation perhaps think of something where the water enough water's gone underneath the bridge that it's not going to come back to you in any kind of way it could be from cricket it could be from education it doesn't matter at this point but um yeah what would be something that comes to mind for you um i just i would probably say in, in education i mean in, i think the experience that i had where i where I was consciously or constantly experiencing microaggressions. I think if I were to sit in a room of people and and talk through that, a lot of people would feel, would feel a bit like Pentecostal church. I mean, people would all be uh, be totally yeah. with me. But for me, I think if there was anything that I would learn from, or anything I would say or advise to anyone around that is, as much as I stuck 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 at it and went through it, I would say you still need to know when enough is enough. And that's the one thing I advise when enough is enough, because as much as it was a huge test and as much as it really pushed me mentally, it needn't have gone that far because it might have broke other people. I think you need to have, wherever your line of tolerance is, where you are being disrespected, that you need to be able to then up and go, but up and go on your terms. And I think there needs to be a cutoff point because sometimes you know, we hang in there, we hang in there, we hang in there because we love the children because that's always a thing as well because after we work in the schools, we have great relationships with the students and, and other colleagues because it's not often when you're in this place where you're feeling a bit ostracised, not everybody. Mm. You still have some colleagues you will lean on and get them really well with and you love the students and you want them to do well and you feel like you couldn't leave them. You know what? There are always other people's children and other students to love and you need to know that and hold on to that because if what you're trying to do and achieve for these people in the community that you're currently serving is not actually serving your well-being at the same time, then you need to cut it off because it is not going to help you. You have families. If you might, well, you may not, but there'll come a point where you have a family and all that kind of thing. Think about the impact it has on those at home, the impact it has on you and how you interact 
with people at home, how much energy you have for your own children, for your family. If it, if it comes to that point when your work where you are so downtrodden, but you're determined to do it because you love the kids, think about what how much it is actually taken out of you. There has to be a cutoff point. I, like that, thank you again like legit thank you yes i'm i when you said about the pentecostal aspects of it me myself i'm sitting on my hands because i'm like i don't want to keep jumping in but it's exactly that you are taking me to church and i know Mm. that there will be other people who are listening who needed to hear that like who very Mm. much needed to hear what you just said in that moment and you know a a phrase that i always say is like uh, self-preservation before self-care so this whole self-care like you say about tolerance i'm agreeing with you these words are just buzzwords for the sake of this well-being strap line that no one actually really knows what they're talking about sometimes. But um, I always look at it that self-preservation has to come before self-care. I can't care for myself if I'm on life support. I have to get off life support, then I can care for myself. So it's that thing of if I'm drawing a boundary around something to say to preserve who I am, this is a cut. This is a cut. You know, I can't keep giving more um, and not filling up my own cup at the same time. So I'm, I'm fully in agreement with that. And um, there's a part in the conversation that I asked, which is regards to reflections that you have for others. But I would perhaps say that that was that, like the, the two come together, which is perhaps this is a near miss for yourself of like, what would it have been like if you were a different person dealing with the same circumstances? And as a reflection for others, consider what it's like to keep going into a space where it's not helpful. The biggest kind of respect that we all need as human beings is self-respect. That's your starting point. And there's that no point in your lives or in your careers where you sacrifice your own self-respect in order to gain the respect of others or to, in order to hold down your job or in order to hold down something because it's not worth it. The amount that it takes out of you is just not worth it. And even thinking about, I, you know, I'm on Twitter, as, as you know, and I do come across people and not necessarily just black people who within their education or within their own field of work, they literally, they will regularly talk about the dread and the, and, the, and the stress that they have in their work. Well, if that's the case, then don't, you know, uh, then do something uh, about it. I then do something about it because you owe it to yourself. Yeah, you owe it to yourself. I think education and teaching itself is an absolutely wonderful job. It's tough. I don't think people understand. They think we spend half our time with our feet up on holidays and all that kind of stuff. It's a really, really tough gig because you are dealing with young people who are growing, who are changing physically, emotionally, psychologically on a regular basis. And you have to manage that, help develop that, help nurture that. And at the same time, ensure that that education remains at the core of why they're in, in your institution. That's not easy. And those who think it's easy when they come into it, I've seen many people come into it and leave because they, it's not easy. But I think it's really important that whoever you are, you hold on to that love for what for for the job, that love of education. But that doesn't necessarily mean because you love the job that you then are that you have to be subjected to abuse or anything of that nature because it simply isn't worth it. I fully, fully, fully agree. And so then where where I'd love to go next with the conversation is just thinking around um, what you look at your role within the ecosystem of Black identity, perhaps challenging anti-Black racism um, within education, through the education that you've had yourself or given to others. How has that morphed perhaps for you? I'm not expecting you to be the same thing all the time, but how do you find that... um, 
playing out for yourself? I think it's about how you evolve. I've been, I think in, in, in my position and in my, where I am in my life, I've, I've been fortunate and I actually reflect on this the other day. I've been a sportsman who's traveled the world and at the same time as a, as a young man who started in a high rise flat in Canning town. So, you know, I've seen the world, I've experienced many, many cultures. It's funny. There's um, an artist, is it Dave? I think there's one track, I think it's his current album, but there's a track where somewhere a young man says, yeah, go and see the world because that's the only way you and, and use those experiences and bring them to people. For me, it's really important that I, I bring who I am to people and my experience as a as a black male because that's what I am, but also just be be true to what I, what I am and what I stand for. I think that's really, really important. And also remembering wholeheartedly that there were people who came before me and I owe it to them to do to do what is necessary. I 100% owe it to them. My grandparents were from the Wimrush generation. They came here and they came here at the request of the British government and they worked damn hard. They were worked in factories. They made sure, my mother and my uncles and my aunt, that they worked hard and supported them to help them achieve their dreams in order for them to support me to achieve what I, what I wanted to achieve. That's important that whatever we do is carried forward. And that's, that is exactly what it's about for me. It has to be carried forward. That is a responsibility as, as a black male who is the, the son of Marvin Rollins and the grand, the grand, you know, the grandson of Franklin Hearst and, and Myrtle Hearst. That is my responsibility. And I think that's something that you can, you should not as, as a as any black person in Britain or anywhere in the world do not forget there were people who came before you who who may have struggled or not have struggled, but they worked damn hard and they did whatever they couldn't understand because in some circumstances people didn't understand they didn't get it right but at the same time understand that whatever struggle they were going through they that you ha- now have to do something either the same or different to make it different for your younger generation. I, you know, I can't, I, I have to do, I have to do because I have children and a grandchild, you know, Congrats. who they have, there's a responsibility as well. So they have to, you know, my son for his child has to do, has to take that responsibility forward. And it's vital that that happens. Thank you. I'm too, I'm too, I'm, I'm too, I'm too young to be a granddad, right? <laughs> no, for real though. I'm just like, okay, like, congrats. Um, so, we're coming to the end of the conversation, but it just feels like, well, put it this way. Yeah. We're coming to the end of the conversation that people are going to be listening to because I definitely have got so many more things to ask you off air. Um, but I do want to take the opportunity to, to thank you like so much. This has been really uplifting. It's Friday morning for me in Canada at the moment. And this has really set me up for a really good day ahead. I just want to thank you so much for that, Adrian. Thank you for joining no us. No problem at all.